You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalms 136. Psalm 136. We're going to kick off our Advent series this morning that's titled The Gift That Keeps On Giving. Why in the world would we title this series The Gift That Keeps On Giving? Because we understand this. If you've listened this morning, you heard Ian share the gospel. If you listen to Brad, you heard him share the gospel. And what you're going to hear again is the gospel. We believe the gift that keeps on giving is the gospel, and the gospel means good news. The Bible, this book collectively, is not a book about good morals, good virtue, and good advice. It's a book about good news. It's, it's, it's not a book about how we are the heroes and we accomplish becoming heroes through our good works. It's actually this whole good news book that's telling us about who God is and what he's done and what he's provided in and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we understand the gospel is not this simply salvation message that welcomes you into eternity with God, into a relationship. It's the very thing that saves you right now. It's sustaining you and it's saving you continually on and on and on for all of eternity. So the gospel is not try harder, it's trust in what Christ has done. The gospel is not do, it's done, all that's been done by Christ. The gospel is not try and earn loved, it's that you are loved based upon God's grace and decision to love you. And so that's important for us to understand because when we get to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, at the very end of this letter, it, it, it's almost like he's starting all over again, but he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So at the very end of this, he's like, hey, this whole letter's been drenched in the gospel. I want to remind you of something, the gospel. We have gospel amnesia which means this, that we hear that the gospel saves us, it's saving us, it sustains us, that we don't earn or merit God's love, and then we walk out of the church doors and immediately start thinking, I gotta somehow perform in order for God to love me, to be pleased with me, and to be happy with me. So it's our job and our goal, especially in this Advent season, but all throughout the year, to constantly bring us back to remind us of the gospel. The gift that keeps on giving is God, who is the ultimate gift giver, who gave the ultimate gift, which is his son, and his son continues to save us, continues to pour out his love because of his own decision and choice. And so that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. That's why we've titled this series, The Gift That Keeps On Giving, because there's nothing more important, more treasurable that we could give you than the gospel itself, because it is the power unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So Psalm 136 is where we're going to be. So we're diving into this morning. We're going to look at this, our main point. Loved children are thankful. Loved children are thankful. That's what we're going to look at, that we don't become loved children. We are loved children. That's an identity that's given to us because we trust and believe in what Christ accomplished for us. We become loved children, not because of how much we love God, but because God loved us first. He's given us that identity. Now, here's how a loved child responds with thankfulness. Let's pray. Father, we first recognize that we turn this season and this time of year into everything else besides what it's intended to be a remembering and a celebration of the greatest gift humanity has ever been given, your son. We recognize, God, that we turn it into every other thing that we want to make it, about all sorts of other gifts 
and all sorts of other things. But it comes down to this. There's a good God who gave us our greatest need, his son to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. Let Christmas come back to this. Let us remember this. Let us celebrate this. And God, let your love and your love for us produce a heart that is thankful, a heart that is grateful, a heart that is rejoicing, a heart that gives praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask some questions to get us started this morning. So some real simple questions. Here you go. Right now, are you thankful? It's my question. Is the general posture of your heart right now thankful? And if yes, then why? If no, then why? Or generally in this season of life, are you thankful? And would you say that's kind of like the posture that you're living in is one out of gratitude, one out of thankfulness or not? I would ask this, and maybe these questions are too reductionistic for you, but for, for, for the sake of us needing to be simple, I think this is going to get to the heart level of, of where we're trying to go. So let's keep building. Why are you not thankful? Would others around you, generally speaking, would they describe you as a thankful person or not? If you're here and you're a Christian and you're not thankful, what do you think needs to be added or supplied in your life in order to produce a spirit of thankfulness? If you're here and you are not a Christian, what do you think that you need in order to become a thankful person? And so the question becomes, are you thankful? Yes or no? If not, then why not? And again, what do people around you say? What does our lack of thankfulness and gratitude say about our actual belief and understanding of our theology and of the gospel? What does scripture have to say about our thankfulness? And is it required? Are Christians required to be thankful? I'd be curious to know, I'm not one for raising hands and stuff like that, but do you guys think, generally speaking, that, that scripture with a simple nod of a yes or no requires us to be thankful or grateful? All right, I'll take that. Let's take a look at a few verses this morning. Let's start with this. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, let us continually, talking about Jesus, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Even the way we pray, we are required to be watchful in it and to pray with the spirit of thanksgiving. Hebrews 12.28 says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Philippians 4.4-7 says this, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. No translation says that. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Paul's writing from prison when he wrote that letter. Colossians 3, 15 and 17 through 17 says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or do you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Multiple times in those verses about giving praise and thanks to God, even the posture of which we sing on a Sunday morning is one of gratitude. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says this, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, or to our God and Father. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, rejoice always, again, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, listen to this, for this is the will for you in Christ Jesus. I've heard countless people say, I'm in, I'm just trying to do God's will. I'm trying to figure out what God's will is. Do you know we have three clear explicit statements of what God's will is in the New Testament? There's reference over and over and over again about, hey, do the will of God, or I'm doing the will of God, or do, yeah, do the will of God. Well, what is it? Thankful for scripture. John 6.40 says this, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What is the will of God? that we look to Jesus for our means and only means of salvation. What's the other will of God? First Thessalonians four, three through five says this. It is God's will for you that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So there's three things here. The will of God is to believe in the son. The will of God is that you grow out of your new nature in sanctification, living into your new identity, living out of your new identity. Again, the Christian message is not make, make improvements. It's you have been made completely and wholly perfect. Now live out of that. We also see that the will of God is for us to give thanks in all circumstances in life. Three explicit times that we're called one of those. God's will for us is to give thanks. Philippians 2, 14 through 16 says this, do everything without complaining and arguing. Some translations are different. Mine says complaining. Do everything. Imagine that. This crushes us, right? Do everything you do without complaining or grumbling. Our family also went and got Christmas trees. I'm going to tell you yesterday that that trip didn't, was not a model of us living faithfully to this passage, okay? There, there was... Like, like in every way. And I could have titled this sermon, it could be a whole lot worse because when your kids are complaining and like crawling over logs, you just want to be like, you know what? It could be a lot worse. Like you could have no legs, you know, or just whatever. You want your kids to grasp it. So I'm not saying I've mastered this by any means. What I am saying is that scripture calls us to clearly be thankful and to rejoice and give thanks. So again, I would ask, is that the posture of your heart this morning or in life? I need you to hear me in this this morning. I'm not preaching at you this morning. I'm preaching to myself. And, and the reason I say that is because of this. My wife and I have argued more over this past year in our 12, almost 12 years of marriage than ever before. <laughs> I would say in some ways there's been a lack of thankfulness and gratitude. It's been a painful year. A lot of those arguments were in and around our foster son who we're hoping to adopt in the real near future. But that consumed us, and anything but gratitude, I would say, kind of define 
us over this past year. So I'm not standing up here this morning saying, I am the most thankful person you will ever meet. And so you should be thankful like I am thankful. I'm standing up here to say, scripture calls and commands every believer in every circumstance in life to give praise and to give thanks. That's a struggle for me. And I'm sure it's a struggle for many of you. I've not arrived at that, but do believe that I want to be faithful in doing that because that's what God's word calls us to do. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 136, which is known as the great Hallel Psalm. Hallel means praise. So it's the great Psalm of praise. In fact, we have Psalm 113 to 118 that are recognized as the Hallel Psalms. Those, those are the Psalms of praise, of rejoicing, of thanksgiving. Every year, the Jewish people, when they would celebrate Passover before that meal, they would sing Psalm uh, 113 and 114. And then when the Passover meal was done, they would sing Psalm 115 through 118. And then they would end it off by singing Psalm 136, the great Hallel Psalm, a Psalm of rejoicing, a Psalm of thanksgiving, but a Psalm that takes us back to who God is and our thankfulness because of that. Let's read it together. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Loved children are thankful. It is pretty clear when you read through this, there is one massive theme the author is trying to get us to understand. 26 times the steadfast love of God endures forever. We're going to come back to that and, and we're going to look at this through different sections. First, looking at what is said in the opening lines. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God. So we're going to look at those first. And as it starts off, first, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That means that God is the source of all good. It's not that good things flow from God, therefore God is good. It's that he is good and every good thing flows from God. You can look at creeks 
and streams and understand those are there because there's a source. There's a spring or there's a lake that they're flowing from. That They exist because there's a source that they're flowing from. Good things exist in our world because God is a source of all good things. In fact, the former atheist C.S. Lewis, who's now passed away, but for the years in his life when he was an atheist, this is the very thing that turned him from atheism to Christianity is he couldn't reconcile this, that he would go through life saying that's, that's evil, that's wrong, or that's bad. Because as soon as he said that, he started to understand that he has a standard in which he sees life through where certain things are good and certain things are bad. And he had to figure out, where am I getting that from? And he goes, surely I'm not the arbitrator. Surely he, uh, human society is not the arbitrator. And so he started to realize we have an understanding and a framework for what is good and what is bad what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, because God is true and because God is good and every good thing flows and comes from the living God. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords is a Semitic way of saying that there's no, no other like our God. This is repeated in Deuteronomy, that there's no other gods like our gods. He is above all gods and worthy to be praised. You have to see the way this starts off is so much different from the way that the Pharisees pray and, and give praise. The Pharisees say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that man over there and that my life's not a wreck like his. I'm not a sinner like his and I don't look like him. That's the way the Pharisees prayed against the tax collector. This is giving thanks to God because he's good because all that he does is good because there's no other gods like him. And so the call to give thanks is simply that. And I'll ask, when is the last time that you simply thanked God for being who he is? God. Or do you love God and thank God because of the good things that God does for you, which those are amazing things. Or do you love and praise and extol God as, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. When's the last time that you hallowed the name of God and just simply spent time thanking God for his goodness in life? This next section in four through nine, we're looking at creation. Creation is a place that we can look to to give thanks to God because of its complex brilliance that we get to see. In fact, a lot of this I got from uh, Dr. Frank Turk, who wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But I love that the way that Frank unpacks this, that in verse four, it says, to him alone who does great wonders, and it goes on to unpack his creation as being great wonders. Do you ever look at the moon and the stars in creation and go, my goodness, that is impressive. There's an argument in the world of philosophy called the teleological argument. There's an argument that flows out of that that's called the fine-tuning argument, which means this, that they believe one of the greatest existence for God is that our world is so finely tuned that human life can even survive on it. I don't believe we need these things to give us evidence for God. I believe God's goodness alone gives us evidence for God. God's revelation gives us evidence for God. But it's fascinating for the Christians to look at these things. As more science comes out, I think sometimes Christians can get nervous and go, oh no. But what it actually does is lead to more and more worship. Let me give a few examples. If our gravitational force was altered by any more than one part in 10 to the 40th power, okay, that, that's, that's a one with 40 zeros behind it we would float away. It is so fine-tuned. Our, our, our gravitational force is so fine-tuned. Our expansion rate, if it was greater or smaller, in the smallest way, we would cease to exist. In fact, an atheist physicist named Stephen Hawking said this, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang, I reject that, we'll keep going, had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionth, it would have recollapsed before it reached its present size. 
our distance from the sun. If we were any closer, we would burn up. If we were any further away, we would freeze to death. Our axial tilt is 23 and a half degrees. If that was changed slightly, we would cease to exist. Our earth rotation is in 24 hours. If that changed, we would cease to exist. The size and the distance from the moon, if that was different, we would not exist. The way that Jupiter was placed in our solar system is a vacuum for earth. It takes in, consumes, and sucks up the majority of comets and meteorites so that those don't come to the earth because it has such a strong gravitational pull. We would be wiped out if it wasn't for Jupiter. Maybe add that to your prayers sometime Thanksgiving. You know, the average distance between stars is 30 trillion miles. The average distance between stars is 30 trillion miles. The space shuttle in orbit that tra travels around Earth, that thing is 120 feet long. It's 350 miles above Earth, and it travels at 18,000 miles an hour, okay? 18,000 miles an hour, which is five miles per second. Do you realize that this would take <laughs> over 200,000 years to travel the distance at this speed between the stars that exist? Over 200,000 years for this machine that can travel 18,000 miles per hour to make it the distance between stars. What about our bodies? Our bodies are packed with DNA. DNA is within a chromosome that's within inside of a cell. Listen to this. We have nearly, roughly 30 trillion cells in our body. 30 trillion cells in our body. Within every cell, there is 3.16 billion pairs of DNA. If you uncoiled one of these microscopic DNAs, it would be six feet long, six feet long. <clears throat> if you tied them all together, all the DNA that's in our body, it would be 34 billion miles long. The Earth and Pluto are 2.6 billion miles apart. NASA also created a different spacecraft called the New Horizon. It travels at 37,000 miles an hour. It took 10 years to reach Pluto. Take that distance, double it, then double that, then triple that, and you still aren't at the distance that it would take if you uncoiled all the DNA from our bodies. Yeah, wow. Man, I struggled to, to get my Christmas lights plugged in yesterday. I'm serious. I called my wife. I'm like, I can't figure out how this would need to go from that to this to that. And I look at this and I'm like, my goodness, the complexity and the brilliance that exists inside of our universe and inside of the human body is mind-blowing. The Psalter is like, give praise to God for all of this. In fact, there's only one appropriate response that King David had. When he looks at the sun and the moon and the stars and sees all that God has made, he goes, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of? Much less that you love him infinitely. I mean, you look at the stuff in our universe and it is mind-blowing to see how brilliant God is. Does it lead you to a place of thankfulness to know that the God that created all of that, that created Everest, that created Mount St. Helens, all the wonders of, of, of the earth, looks at you and says, I also created you and I love you. That you actually know the God personally. I, if, if you have any understanding of architecture or anything like that or admire it, you, you could look at the, the, the universe and the human body and go, I actually know the one who created all of that. I, I know him and he knows me and he loves me infinitely. Does that produce a level of thankfulness in you? Let's look at this next section. 10 through 16. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. Love children 
marvel at God's goodness. Loved children marvel at God's creation, but loved children marvel at the salvation God provides. When's the last time that you thought about all that it took for you to become a loved child of God? And we're simply thankful for no other reason but for that and that alone. What we understand from Israel is there was a sense and an understanding that they had that the deliverance that they received was nothing they could provide themselves. They were underneath cruel masters and cruel slavery. They were incapable of delivering and saving themselves. They understood the salvation and redemption and rescue that was going to be needed was going to have to be provided by someone else. And that was God. When you know that you are incapable of saving yourself, when you know that there is nothing you can do to deliver yourself, when you are hopeless, that is when the good news of God's salvation provided in Jesus Christ becomes really good news. Think about it. You're walking along and there's a cockroach in front of you and someone steps on it. You don't go, thank you for saving my life. But if you're walking along and there's a cobra and someone kills that right before you step on it, you understand in in that moment, there's a different level of gravity. You're like, whoa, that could have killed me. Thank you for saving my life. Same thing. If you fall off a three foot ladder and someone catches you, you probably aren't going to, you'll probably say, thank you, but you're not going to be like, oh my gosh, I I like, I owe my life to you. You know, but if you fall off a 40 foot ladder and someone manages to save you from that, there'd be a different level of gratitude. This is why Jesus, when when he was talking to the Pharisees, said this, those that are forgiven much, love much. Those that understand what the Bible says, that you are dead in your trespasses, that you are an enemy of God, that you are hostile in your thinking, that you deserve the wrath of God, that you are helpless and hopeless to save yourself by any sort of means and anything you've done. When God steps in and saves you, you understand and go, wow, I did nothing to earn that. Look, God did not save you because you were impressive in junior high. God did not save you because you were impressive in high school. God did not save you because you have a more boring testimony. God did not save you by any means of looking at your life and seeing something that really impressed him. Every single person who is a part of God's family, who will sit around Christ's table where he's the king for all eternity, only enters by one way, recognizing you can't save yourself and recognizing that Christ did it all. That's it. You will forever be an insecure person before God if your security is how much you love God instead of how much God radically loves you. Do you understand that? Uh, This is so hard for me. So hard for me to see that I need to be saved. So hard for me to see that I need the salvation of God. In fact, years ago, I was uh, pursued a whole career in mixed martial arts. And I remember going down to these tryouts that were in Reno I had only had three professional fights underneath my belt at this time. And there were tryouts for this team that was a part of this league called the International Fight League. And so many people wanted to be on it because you got to fight internationally. But more than that is they provide a monthly salary for you. And so, so many people showed up to this tryout that happened in Reno. And I drove my buddy to this and we tried out together. I gave it my all, but did not make the team. In fact, I didn't even get a courtesy phone call that said like, thanks for trying out or anything like that. My buddy who I drove, he made the team. He got his contract and all that stuff. And I was so bummed. And I was like, this is what I thought. I was like, there's no way that I can, that I can show my worth and value over a five minute tryout because I rely upon grit and (laughs) just a willingness to outwork people in and around my life. And so my buddy called and he's like, why don't you come train with us? And maybe if they watch you train for like a week or something like that, they might give you a position on the team. So I went and 
I hung out with them and after a week they offered me a contract and I got to sign a contract with this league that I really wanted to be a part of, okay? I don't say that to like be like, oh, I'm awesome or anything like that, okay? You guys already know that. And so, just kidding. <laughs> I, I say that to say this. Most things in life, from my perspective, are things that you have to earn and work harder than everyone else in order to get there. It doesn't matter what I do. I, I, I essentially pride myself that I'm going to outwork people in order to do better than them. The second great downfall I have on top of that arrogance to think that I can accomplish whatever I need in life by hard work is that my wife would tell you, and so would our friends, is that I can have a very independent attitude as though I don't need people. You mix those two things together and guess what? The gospel rattles your whole world. To know that you can't work hard, accomplish something, provide your blood, sweat, and tears, and to know that you are completely 100% needy and dependent upon someone else, their grace and their work, boy, that's why we struggle as Americans to get our minds and hearts wrapped around the message of God's salvation. So difficult. We don't earn it, but we are in desperate, desperate need of it, and he provides it. Due to us kicking off Advent today and Brad's 30-minute announcement about our giving, I'm going to have to condense this down. Okay, Brad, I love you. That was a joke. Uh, I'm going to condense this last part down. What this last section is about is about God's provision, God's provisional care and love for his children. You know, God always provided for Israel. He provided manna in the wilderness. He provided quail for them because they're like, we don't got any meat. And he's like, oh, I'll give you more meat than you can handle. They, they crossed over in the promised land and it was time to celebrate Passover. And they're like, where are we going to get everything? There were orchards there. There were crops there. There were vineyards there. Why? Because other people planted it and God's people got to reap the benefits of other people's work. Tell me that's not a picture of the gospel. That is, we reap all the benefits of Christ's work. What we see is God's provision. We see God's care and we see God's care for his children. Let me say this. This morning I woke up to a text from a pastor who's a friend of mine in Salem from another Acts 29 church there. And their executive pastor, a man named Brandon, son died this morning in a car accident. The church is stunned. Obviously, Brandon is stunned. And their message is on hope this morning. You see, it's super easy in life to be thankful in light of a good season, to be thankful in light of going through easy circumstances. The question for us is, do we trust in God's provision enough in the midst of pain and difficulty to be able to give him praise and thanks for his goodness and knowing that by some reason, in some way, to quote Spurgeon, when you can't make sense of the hands of God, trust his heart. Well, are we willing to give thanks for God's goodness in the midst of most painful seasons? And I know that there's many sitting here this morning that are in that. As you just had Thanksgiving maybe for the first time without a relative, you're having Christmas for the first time without a relative. That's painful, and I'm sorry. But we can still, in the midst of our greatest pains in life, I've lost a father, lost close friends, and in the midst of our greatest pain, we can still be thankful in this, that God is good, that his creation is marvelous, that he's provided salvation for us, and God will provide for us every step of the way and only do what is best for our good and for his glory. But if you want one more reason to give praise and thanks to God leading into this Christmas season, then look at the 26 times the author's telling us to meditate and remember and reflect on this. Look, guys, 
His steadfast love endures forever. As Brad says, the English language has so, I mean, we, we, have, we have diminished the word love. I love burritos. I love hunting. I love fishing. I love my wife. I, I'm, I sure hope there's a little bit of a different tier with those four things. But we just use the same word over and over and over again. The word that's used here in the Hebrew is called hesed, God's hesed love. What it means is that God's love is loving it's loyal and it's generous. God loves us, not based upon our worthiness, but he loves us based upon his character, his loyal, generous, faithful commitment to love us. In fact, we see Hesed love appear. In the story of Ruth, we see that Ruth is, is, is going to show Hesed to Naomi. She's not going to stay with Naomi because of anything that Naomi's done. She's going to stay with her based upon Ruth's own character. It's a Hesed character. It's a it's one of loyal love. Jacob says this, you know, Jacob in the Bible, he's the one that was very deceitful and did a lot of trickery. Finally, he has this revelation in, in his life. He's like, he says, God, I am unworthy of your hesed. He realizes that the love in which he has is a reflection of God's character, not his decisions and actions in his life. When Moses appeals to God on behalf of the Israelites to forgive them, Moses appeals to God's hesed. He says, forgive them because you are hesed. He appeals to his loyal, faithful love, not to the actions of the Israelites, but to God's loyal, generous, and faithful love. 26 times, it tells us this over and over and over again, that God's love endures. The question for you is, do you believe that God's love for you, based upon your trust and faith in the work of his son, endures in your life? And does it produce thankfulness for you? Some people aren't thankful. Let's just get to the heart here. You're not thankful because you're self-righteous. And what you tend to believe, though you wouldn't say this, is that you're just a pretty darn good person and God has kind of came in and he's helped you out a little bit more. Therefore, it's really hard for you to be thankful because you spend more time looking at what you've done for God instead of what God has done for you and your desperate need for it. There's other people that aren't generally thankful because they're filling themselves with the pleasures of this world. And so instead of running after God, the only one who can produce a real deep sense of thankfulness, they're finding thankfulness and just things that just flash by. The other reason we're not thankful is just we're not content. We're a discontent people. And somehow we've believed the lie that if somehow I have this, 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 or this in life, if I can get through this season, if I can get through this circumstance, if I can accomplish this, I will be thankful. The reality is, is we're called to be thankful because God's love endures forever. Jesus came, he walked the earth. He was perfectly grateful to God every second, every moment of every day. He's the only truly thankful person that's walked this earth in complete gratitude to God. But he went to the cross to die because we are ungrateful people. He suffered on the cross, died in our place. And when we trust in him, God sees you. Hear this. God looks at you every moment of every day and sees a person who's perfectly thankful because Christ gave that to you when you trusted in him. God chooses to love you based upon devotion and based upon action. The truth is though, it's not based upon your devotion or your actions. It's his own devotion and actions and the devotion and actions of his son. Do you trust that God loves you without end? Think about it. 30 billion or 30 trillion miles between stars. That's measurable. And all the stars in the universe, that would be a massive number. I don't even know if we have a number for that, but it's still quantifiable. Do you know what's not? God's love for his children. 
You cannot put a number to that. There's no limit. It's not measurable. It's infinite. This is why the apostle Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, this is my prayer. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's also why Paul says in Romans, for I'm sure, Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His steadfast hesed, his steadfast, generous, faithful love endures forever. It will never stop. It has no limits. If there's one thing that could produce a sense of, thankfulness in our hearts. It is God's love for us. How much does he love us? God loves us as much as he loves his son. Look at John 17, 23. I and them and you and me, that they, become perf- that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. John 15, 9 says this. This is Jesus. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Do you want to know what's mind-blowing to me? I have no clue why God would love me the same that he loves his son. Why Jesus would love me the same that, think about that, the same that he loves the father. But I do know this, that he does. And it doesn't alter, it doesn't waver, it doesn't shift, it doesn't rise, it doesn't fall. It stays the same because his love is enduring forever. Therefore, loved children are thankful. Where can we go from this first? Paul says, pray. So here is what I would challenge you to do. Whenever you pray this week, start off this week, this morning, by simply giving God praise and thanks for who God is, for who he is, and and, and then for what he's done and for his love that he's given you. But start off your mornings like that. There is something that shifts in our minds when we start to look at and think about the things that are praiseworthy and excellent. Paul says that in Philippians 4.8 as well. Start off with this posture of thankfulness, because guys, things could be a whole lot worse. You could have woken up with the news this morning that Brandon did. Your kids might be a pain in the butt, but at least they're alive. And if they're not, I'm deeply sorry for you, and our heart goes out with you this morning. But I hope you know this. You don't have to walk through pain anymore alone. You can be thankful that, that God is in your midst. He is Emmanuel, and he's walking with you. Next. What can you do? This will be the last point. Thankfulness is pictured in generosity. When you understand this, how far was God willing to go to welcome you into his family, to give his only son? How far was Jesus willing to go to prove his loyal love? You don't ever have to question Christ's love for you. Look to the cross. If he was ever going to back out and say, I'm not going to endure this. I'm not going to be loyal. He would have done it there. When that sinks in, the response for the Christian is a life of thankful generosity. We're generous in our time. We're generous in our finances. We're generous with what we have because we realize everything that we have in this life, we actually don't deserve, but it's a gift of God. Think about it. Uh, I work hard. Yeah. With the, with the life God gave you. Well, I studied hard to get this degree with the mind God gave you. You know, I thought about this toilet paper, you know, that was a big thing in the pandemic. We would not have toilet paper if God didn't create the world and create the trees and create the mind of the man who knows how to take trees and make them into toilet paper. 
Give thanks to God for that. All that to say that we are people that can be thankful because of all of God's gift, but ultimately because of his most lavish gift, his love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and that loved children lived thankfully and generously. Help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.